The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So uh, we're moving ahead. Some of you maybe noticed, um, but uh, we have slips of paper in the lobby in case you want to download a digital version of this book, uh, Meditation, A Way of Awakening by Ajahn Sushito. He's a British Buddhist monk. And it's a wonderful manual of the practice, and we'll be looking at it for the next six months or so. And we're just now starting with the first section. We did the preliminaries last week, which the last two weeks, which is really looking at the question, well, why meditate? Like, what are we doing? And one of the first sort of answers to that question that all of us have is, I'm beginning to suspect that real peace has less to do with, that, with what's out there, like in my world and more to do with what's going on in my heart or mind, right? So that's generally what brings people to the practice is they've got this deepening insight that the causes for peace have more to do with what's going on inside than whether we're rich or poor or this or that. Not that that stuff doesn't matter. It does matter. You know, the ex external conditions matter. If we're chronically ill, if we're oppressed in different ways, it matters. If we're in the dying process and our mind is, you know, there's a lot of pain or a lot of confusion in the mind, it's, not e- it's less easy to be, to find peace. But ultimately, we practice so that the mind is established in an understanding that can handle any conditions that show up. And anybody who's been practicing, whether you consider yourself a formal Buddhist practitioner or just practicing basic human common sense, which is to be more awake as you live your life, or present as you live your life, whoever you are, formal Buddhist practitioner, somebody who values being present, you will have fine. You could probably report to us this morning that, yeah, in the past, I was more reactive, less able to negotiate the ups and downs, the joys and sorrows of life without a lot of reactivity and a lot of suffering. Now, because of the way I've been practicing in life, joys and sorrows still come my way, ups and downs still happen, but there's just a lot more space, a lot less reactivity around the ups and downs in life. So this is always the issue in practice, and I think it can be confusing. There are two things we as human beings do. We as human beings should be interested in why my life goes up and down, why I experience joy and sorrow, and why other people experience joy and sorrow, right? Because knowing that I care about the joys and sorrows that come my way, it's pretty easy to recognize that other people are being pushed around by joys and sorrow. Some people, a lot of sorrow and not so much joy. So one of the things we do in life is we attend to this. But as a spiritual, someone interested in the spiritual path, We just include this other work. So we're not just interested in why it is that joy and sorrow comes my way and affects other other people's lives. But I'm also interested in what is the best 
what is the best way, the most skillful way to relate to the joys and sorrows that come my way. Because if we spend all of our life energy just trying to control, trying to manage the joys and sorrows that are coming our way, we miss the most effective way to take care of ourselves and take care of everybody, which is this, what I meant, I talked about last week, turning the mind, turning the heart back on itself as a relevant place to learn something about how to be free, how to be happy, how to be peaceful in a world where joys and sorrows come our way, inevitably, unavoidably. What is the proper understanding? What is the proper, the skillful way to relate to joy when it comes our way and sorrow when it comes our way? Now, that's a question we should have an answer for. I often say, you know, if a a really wise and sincere teenager came to you and said something like, God, my life is all over the place. Sometimes really great stuff is happening and sometimes really difficult stuff is happening. And what do you do with that? You know, some really sincere young adult came to us and said that. Would we have some wisdom to share with them? Well, when joy comes your way, this is what I've learned to do. When sorrow, when difficulty, whatever that is, comes your way, this is what I've learned to do. This is how I've learned to be free, to be happy, to be loving, no matter whether joy or sorrow is showing up on my doorstep. Wouldn't that be nice to be able to share that with the world or, you know, the sort of proverbial, young, sincere person who looks up to us because we have a few more years, maybe some of you a lot more years under your belt, right? And sort of they expect, like, well, have you been learning from the life you've been living? And if you've been learning something of value, it has to be about what do we do with the joys and sorrows, the ups and downs, the twists and turns that inevitably human beings have to deal with? What is the skillful way, the liberating way, the way of love, the way of wisdom and skill that you've learned? And then we're on the spot. What is the way? What have I learned? And this is part of our practice is the distilling of what we're learning. You know, part of why we come together, part of why we study the teachings of the Buddha and other wise women and men is because it illuminates, it helps to clarify our own lessons that we've learned, you know, the wisdom that we've gained about how to relate to joy and sorrow, how to relate to the twists and turns of our life, how to be able to show up right in the middle of the messiness of our lives and the beauty of our lives and the challenges of our lives without somehow thinking that, well, I can't be happy because I haven't, and then you just fill in the blank, I haven't managed to make this thing that's really great that's going on in my life permanent, or I haven't managed to get rid of this thing that's really difficult in my life, I haven't managed to get rid of it. So we keep postponing our real happiness, our real peace, until we think this world of external conditions, external circumstances, are just the way we imagine they're supposed to be. 
So this movement of turning the mind, the heart in on itself is arising out of some intuition that there's a way to be in the world, to be in this imperfect world where we're not in control of joy and sorrow coming our way. There's a way to be with it and to be free, even though it's imperfect, even though we're not in control, even though there's a lot of suffering around us. And it's just a very interesting question, you know, and especially I met, talked a lot last week about what's up for a lot of us is just not just these past couple of weeks, but more these past few years, partly thanks to technology, we can't, you know, as a culture live in denial that some aspects of our culture are really broken and unjust, like the criminal justice system and the way it, uh, it relates to people of color. I mean, but there are many other injustices and some were somewhat awake to and a lot were probably not so awake to. But the more we see that, the question is, as I learn how to show up, as I learn how to be curious, as I learn how to um, deconstruct what is really painful maybe even humiliating to deconstruct. Do I have to be a suffering being or can that be a liberating experience to do the difficult work of our lives? I see that also in my relationship with Wynne, my partner. Now for, you know, we've been living together for 25 years and uh, it's, it's difficult uh, and beautiful and uh, it doesn't get, it hasn't really gotten easier in some ways, but I trust the process a lot more than I used to. But even though it's not easier, there's much more of a sense that it's liberating to stay right in the middle of it, like to keep recommitting to it. And because I see that, I, I don't believe the thoughts of, oh, I got to get, I got to run, I got to hide, I got to close down. I don't believe those thoughts as much as I used to. And instead, I, because I directly sense how liberating it is for me, hopefully for her too, to be in the relationship, to be committed to the relationship, to not imagine that it's like when things get difficult, and it's the same thing like committing to spiritual practice, it's going to get difficult, it's going to get messy. It's the same thing with people who care about the health of any level of community, like racial justice. We've been talking about a lot at the center. We had a wonderful workshop yesterday with Terry Karras, one of our teachers here, just a great presence, um, and just has the right background to talk about this intersection of waking up, especially as white people, speaking from my point of view, to the experience of privilege and uh, kind of systemic unconsciousness that goes with that conditioned experience of being a white person in our culture and like how I've this heart mind's been conditioned to not see so we've been unpacking that slowly little by little with our own study and we want to sense that that work that messy work is so liberating and then then we really understand the place for formal meditation practice because it's the place where we find the right time, the right place, a 
an appropriate posture on a chair, on a cushion, kneeling, sitting cross-legged, with an altar in front of us, without an altar in front of us. You know, it's like all pragmatic. What can we do to create supporting conditions to practice sitting right up in the middle of our life where we're letting the particular conditions of the body, the particular conditions of the mind, the thoughts and emotions that are moving, the particular conditions around us. Now, it's a relatively simple environment. That's why it's our formal meditation time. We're doing the formal meditation time is when conditions are relatively simple. But as anybody who's practiced for a while know, a lot comes up when we're sitting. So it's not just simple. It can be very rich and very challenging. Precisely because we've set, we've uh, brought, we've created some safety you know, by where we're sitting, the time we're sitting, the conditions around. The pe- maybe we're sitting with a good friend or we've come to a place like common ground where we feel safe. <clears throat> and we're practicing letting everything move, letting the causes and conditions of our life, internal, external, we're le- letting everything move. And we're learning how to be really engaged, really intimate, <clears throat> not in denial, deconstructing what's moving, meaning we're not just seeing things superficially. So when some attitude arises in our mind like, oh, this is stupid, the wisdom of the mind deconstructs it. And it sees the roots of that pattern to back away, you know, to use that line, oh, this is stupid. Like how many, now that's not everybody's pattern, but enough of us in this room have that pattern where when things get rough, when things get a little confusing or unpleasant, we go, this is stupid. You know, and we turn the attention somewhere else. Instead of, well, this is interesting that the mind has the attitude that this is stupid, or this is boring, or this is not about me, this is not my business. Right? You know, all the ways, this is called delusion, all the ways we've justified and we're justifying being disconnected, or even more poignantly, all the places in our lives we've justified not being interested. And this is one of the things that Terry mentioned yesterday in the workshop, but I definitely see in my own mind, it's like I have to train myself to be interested in what I, my heart, my mind's been conditioned to not be interested in. It's not my responsibility. It's not my fault. It's not about me. Oh, is that really true? Is that really true? Maybe, you know, like in terms of news things. And I just notice, like I see something, oh, that's not about me. Or I already know what that's about. And it's the same in our sitting where different emotions, different external experiences arise, different internal experiences arise. And it's like, that's not about what's happening. But the fact is, it is about, it is what's happening. It's like this is the great thing about the, the sort of form, the ritual of sitting meditation practices, whatever shows up, even the experience of numbness, even the sense this isn't important, even the, a sense of flatness, nothing's happening, even uh, the quality of restlessness or irritation, it's all relevant. It's all 
it can be interesting. It should be interesting because in that moment, it's actually our life as it is, right? That is our life that's showing up for us. And if we cultivate the habit of thinking, this isn't it, boy, think about that habit on steroids, right? Where the mind gets in the habit of thinking that the moment that's showing up right now isn't it. That becomes a systemic habit. And then isn't it, it's no wonder why so many of us feel depressed a lot of the time. If we've had that ongoing habit deeply ingrained in the mind to think, this isn't it. I don't know what my life is, but this isn't relevant. This moment isn't interesting. This isn't the moment I want to be living, wanting to be, wanting to be experiencing right now. So I'm going to take my attention. I'm going to look elsewhere. I'm not going to practice being intimate with what I'm feeling, what I'm seeing, what I'm directly experiencing. I'm going to go to the mind, the thinking mind, that can create dreamlike realities, right? We start to think about the life we want to be living. And we get lost in thought, basically. And then if we do that over and over again, then we start to experience not being connected to life. And that's the experience of depression, being dead, not caring, nothing matters. It's unsatisfying to live that kind of life. And then we become even more vulnerable to the snake oil salespeople, you know, basically our economy, that is dangling exciting things in front of us to do this. And this is true even in the world of Buddhism. You know, they're sort of dangling things. Oh, this book, this retreat, this workshop, this and that. I'm not saying that some of those things can be helpful. Some of the dangling things are saying, hey, don't be addicted to dangling things. (laughs) So... This is a common ground itself is one of those dangling things. You know, this Sunday morning program is one of those dangling things. And a good dangling thing is saying, you know, be aware of dangling things. <laughs> and by the way, while we're all here, let's just sit in the middle of it all. Let's just learn. Let's take advantage of having some kind of, all of us, shared intention, shared aspiration. And let's just sit right in the middle And let's practice not being afraid, not judging, not second-guessing what's showing up in the experience of the mind and body. Let's learn how to be, how to uncover this all-embracing interest, this capacity for, and let's, this capacity for intimacy and how it actually brings us alive, even when it's really difficult. And, and, you know, with things that can be really confusing and humiliating, like uh, you know, on, this, on the more external part of our life, looking at issues of racial injustice, or on the internal sort of like places that scare us, places that remove a sense of ground, a sense of certainty, a sense of self. You know, we can pathologize them as scary and bad, or we can see them as a way of coming alive and becoming liberated and free, where love flows naturally, where we're able to be more engaged and more skillful. We're not 
sort of destined to, like, well, I, I mean, I'm only 58, but I notice more and more the thought, like, you know, life is passing. I'm just not going to do that. I'm just not going to get that. That's for the next generation. You know, it's like, but it's an, like I'm abdicating responsibility for being a loving, uh, healing, wise force in the world. It's like a giving up, right? And like we can look at all the ways we're practicing giving up. And one of the ways I notice it is this sense of re, uh, the unwholesome sense of retreating into a safe space, as if that's going to make us safe. Is there a safe space in the world? I mean, really, when we look at it objectively, where's that safe space? There's no safe space. Doesn't mean that we're, you know, going to go right into the battle lines unprepared. It just means that. Whatever feels like a relatively safe space is just that. It's a relatively safe space until it isn't anymore. You know, and then we're always looking for the next relatively safe space. So that's okay. And I said that at the beginning of the talk. We're going to want to get good at finding relatively safe space. Our formal meditation practice is a, should be a relatively safe space so we can practice being undefended. We can practice not having to protect ourselves, but really see what needs to be seen, feel what needs to be felt. And so the things to keep in mind, you know, just some pragmatic things I want to cover before opening it up, you know, to really get interested in the actual form of the ritual of daily sitting practice. And I would really intend for it to be daily. It may not be daily, but why not have the intention, even if it's just two or three minutes, to, in your chair, in your cushion, in that corner of your apartment or house, where you've put aside this little sacred space, even if you have to recreate it each time, you can't set it aside just for your meditation because it's used for other things, but you've got that corner, you keep it uncluttered, you make it feel... Uh, supportive, whatever that looks like for you, it's going to be different. Some of you are going to sit in front of a window. Some of you are going to have a more formal altar. Some of you are going to be just in a neutral space. But you've got a place. You have a chair or cushion that you use. You know where it is. If you can dedicate it just for that use, all the better. You have a sense of what times work best in your life. You know the lies you tell yourself, I'll do it later. You know that's just a lie, right? So it's like, no, no, there's no later. It's either now or never. If I practice postponing now, I'll be a little better at postponing later, right? Because I practice postponing now. So you know all the things. You know how you're going to time it. You could go uh, to your app store on your smartphone if you have one and download Insight. It's an Insight Timer, I think it is. It's a really nice free app, and then there's some cool things to it. You don't have to get into more detailed stuff, but one of the cool things is when you set it for you know your 30-minute sit or your 20-minute sit or your 90-minute sit, you'll see all the people around the world who are sitting at that time. Right? It's like instant community. It's very nice. And uh, there are other apps that I don't know about that are out there that you can use. 
So you don't have to look at the clock, then the, you shut your phone off, uh, but it will ring, right? So you don't have to look at it, and you set it for a time, you're pretty sure that you don't have to move, or at least not move much for that period of time. And then no matter what, I mean, short of the building starting to burn down or somebody screaming like they're being murdered, you don't move. doesn't matter what the dog is doing in the other room or the cat or the kid even because somebody's taking care of that kid now, right? That's the whole point. You've arranged your schedule so you don't have to be a human being with duties and responsibilities for that 20 minutes. Because that alone... That ritual alone of disconnecting from your duties and responsibilities is profound. To say that now, for this period of time, my duty and responsibility is to be clearly aware of what's coming and going. Clearly aware of the joys and sorrows as I cycle through my sensitive heart. This space of awareness, which is the same as the space of our sensitive heart the heart that's constantly touched by what's moving, by thoughts that come and go, emotions, memories, sensations, sounds, sights. You can sit with your eyes open or closed. A lot of how you sit is pragmatic in the sense of like what supports the continuity of this awareness, what actually supports it for you. And the key is to build up so that when you sit down, you have a sense that, one, you can do it for that amount of time, and two, it's a good thing. And let the success that you feel, the joy that you feel, the liberation that you feel, keep you coming back. That felt good. Now, feeling good does not mean the sit was actually pleasant. It might have been the hardest thing you've done in your life thus far, really. Some sits will be the most difficult thing you've done. You will have felt all kinds of impulses to quit because really difficult stuff happens. I was sitting for an hour earlier this morning, and uh, boy, I just had some really unpleasant, subtle sensations there. And just learning to be right there in the experience, be unafraid, not feel the not act on the compulsion to want to control, fix, or judge, but just to be right in the middle. And you see how it prepares us, because to be skillful, to be skillfully engaged in the world we live, we need to, moment by moment by moment, we need to be able to land in the experiences that are showing up for us. We have to actually be raw and intimate and awake how else are we going to know what to say, what to do, what not to do? Right? Because if we don't meet the moment with intimacy, then our response is going to come out of reactivity. And I don't know about you, but my reactive patterns, the habit energies of my heart, they're not very skillful. You know, they, they sort of, this is the transmission we've gotten from our ancestors, you know, from my father and mother from my culture, right? That's, my react- that's sort of my conditioned reactivity. That's where it's come from. And, th- and of course, they got it from their ancestors. And, and so we have been, for almost ever, infecting one generation after another with greed, anger, and delusion, these reactive patterns. 
And so it's our turn to say enough is enough. Let's not continue to transmit the only way to be in the world is to react with greed, anger, and delusion. So that's what we're doing is it's going to be there because those patterns have a lot of momentum in our conditioned personalities. But now we can sit there. right? We're developing this skill of sitting right in the middle, alert, relaxed, stripping away defensive patterns so we can feel, see more clearly what's moving, what's happening. And although we'll, because of the momentum, we'll feel the impulse to react with aversion or denial, distraction, or greed. Boy, I'd like you know, massage right now, or I'd like to be anywhere but here right now. But we won't believe those reactive patterns. So that's just a thought. That's just an urge. That's just that. Well, I could be okay with that. I can feel the impulse without taking it personally. And that's what we mean by insight. We call this tradition here in the West, instead of Theravada Buddhism, we call it insight meditation often because we're just emphasizing the fruit of practice, which is the mind sees something it hasn't seen before or it sees something more clearly than it's ever seen it before. And basically, what is it seeing? It's seeing the possibility of non-reaction, non-identification with those unwholesome patterns of greed, anger, and delusion. This is how the Buddha defines nirvana or nibbana, liberation. Liberation is the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion in the mind. Or you could say the cessation of the mind identifying and acting out greed, anger, and delusion. Right? So the forces of greed, anger, and delusion in our mind are no longer a problem because the mind has enough clarity, enough sensitivity, that it's not confused by the aversion that's gotten triggered. It's not going to act it out. One of the things we talked about in our workshop yesterday that was really, I thought, interesting and useful, uh, because a lot of us are in circles where, like again, going back to this issue of racial justice, we're in circles where people will say, well, all lives matter. And... uh, And it's just like, well, what do you say in a situation like that and how easy it is to get defensive or judgmental of the person who's doing that or just being feeling confused and how it's so useful to notice everything that's getting triggered, like not wanting to rock the boat Well, might be something that gets triggered or even being confused. Well, yeah, why shouldn't we say all lives matter? Rachel Martin, one of our leaders here, had this had heard this great line that I think just really brings a lot of clarity to that. It's like, well, if a, if one house is burning down, you wouldn't say to the people around trying to do something, well, all houses matter. <laughs> no, you'd address the house that's burning down. You'd put the water there. You'd bring your attention there because that's where the problem is. That's where the suffering is. That's where the oppression is. And so... Part of our practice is learning how to respond, and it's really hard to respond when we're afraid, like afraid of rocking the boat, afraid of saying the wrong thing, or we're caught in some reaction of like needing to be the one who knows, the one who's wise, the one who's going to put people in their place. You know, we're angry. So we have all these reactions that show up, 
And it's really important to be able to be clearly aware of them so that we can better sense what would be a good response in this moment. How can I express love and compassion and fearlessness and generosity? How can, what would that look like in this moment? So I'll leave it here. It would be nice to hear from some folks. We have about 10 minutes or so. And uh, if you have a thought, uh, yeah, please, Robert in the back. Yeah, is this on? Cool. Uh, my name is Robert. And um, there were like maybe two different parts that you were talking about that kind of came together as a thread for me. Um, and it's a little bit hard to explain exactly, but when you were talking about uh, the cause of depression being being out of the moment and wanting something uh, and being in the, the, the thoughts of, of how it could be, that made so much sense to me. Um, and then I feel like later you were talking about the learning, the, the, the reactive patterns of the ancestors and of the parents. Um, and for me, I saw in myself, in my experience, something of uh forming sort of like a, a personality that 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 disallowed those reactive patterns to be likable and to be appropriate socially um and and meanwhile doing the whole uh uh thinking about about what life could be um and not being present to it um and and so those two those two together like feeling reactive all the time and never uh letting it reach the surface created just such a a constant anxiety and deep depression um and as i'm uh being with that uh and being in the world it's really uh 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 challenging to to now interact with people in an honest way with this pattern being so deep to always be nice my super ego tells me i have to always be friendly and likable and um and then right underneath that there is this reactivity that's so mean so mean so terrible from my dad uh and so to to have both of those at once been quite a challenge just every single day um so i was grateful for hearing both pieces of that um and um, I just wanted to uh, express gratitude for how much the, the racial justice piece comes up here. Uh, that's been really awesome. And uh, I thought it would be appropriate to also mention that the group Showing Up for Racial Justice, which is white folks doing their work around race, has their monthly meeting today uh, in Uptown from 2.30 to 5. It's at a Universalist church. I think it's on 34th and DuPont approximately. Yeah. Um, and this month they'll be doing specific work with the uh, Philando Castile and the the emotions and the n- need for healing that's come up there for white folks. And then a second piece of the meeting will be looking at action going forward. Yeah. Thank you, Robert, for sharing that. Who'd like to go next? Other thoughts, questions you have, experiences from your practice, your life that you'd like to share with the group? Hi, everyone. My name is Carrie. Um, I've been coming here since about February. I moved from Western New York and just wanted to first express how grateful I am for the existence of this center. It's been just 
monumental and just so helpful directing me on the path that I want to take in life. Um, so thank you. And everyone who allowed Just a few things really struck a chord with me and it's really about being intimate with your experience, um, not just living in the superficial waves on top of what's down there and being okay with what it is. Um, I still get lost all the time because I'm new here and that hasn't changed. I still get lost. I still can't find the nice ride station that I need to get to to walk here because my bike's broken. Um, but just the littlest thing like that, that still happens. But seeing how being in a compassionate state of mind just changes that. It's still happening, but it's okay. Um, so just little things like that are you start to notice when you practice and then that joy from saying, Oh, I did that in a compassionate way. I wasn't mad at myself for getting lost. Then that comes into my sitting practice and I'm happy and I'm oh noticing now in my sitting practice, I'm happy. I'm hanging on to that happiness. Can I just go back to that peaceful, you know, just inner peace within me and not get swept away in any emotion, whether it's good or bad. Um, and then it's just those little things that help me with the bigger things, like dealing with the sorrow of you know a sibling who is depressed and dealing with a father who has had an accident. And it's just the little things add up and with continued practice really do just help to see how to how to deal with the joys and sorrows and there's something that I think you've said and I've heard before it's like once you start practicing you start meditating you can't stop because you start seeing this stuff and you want to just know more and more and more about yourself and the world and how to live in it skillfully I think the second part of that is if you haven't started don't start <laughs> that, that's but, a joke <laughs> joke part <laughs> yeah something you could what is it actually yeah well i think it was Trungpa Rinpoche said something like you were just saying and the second part is if you haven't begun better not to begin having begun better to go continue on yeah to finish not having begun do you really want to do this work but that's the, the one of the points carrie's making is we don't really have a choice because we're drawn to it it's like we it's at some point, human beings realize it's intolerable. It's too much work to stay in a state of denial. It's just a question of when we come to that point. And then we seek out support for turning inward. doesn't mean we're still not engaging the world externally. We're just doing this other half, which is we're looking inside. Thanks, Carrie. Time for one more comment or question. Anybody else? Yeah, please. Um, hello, my name is Nico. Um, I thought it was interesting that you uh, phrased the point of teenagers coming here and looking for wisdom uh, because they don't know where they are in life, and that is really just my situation completely. Um, I'm 17, and I lived for quite a while in a state of um, greed, anger, and denial, 
and um, coming here and learning to like be present and not necessarily aiming to eliminate the feelings and sensations of greed, anger, and denial, but rather just become aware of them and see the roots and the causes and better prevent them in myself and others has really just changed my outlook um, and my like introspection on quite about everything in my life completely. So I just wanted to thank you and like everyone else for believing that and being supportive. Mm. Thanks, Nico. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.